today I'd like to explore for the third and last time the theme of the eight worldly winds. And uh, take some of where we've gone and bring, bring it into some new areas. So my intention is to first focus some on some of what we've already explored, that is, how do we practice with the eight worldly winds? And those here for the first time, the eight worldly winds, which were behind some of our recent jokes of the last few minutes, <laughs> is what we've, what we've explored the last uh, two weeks. The eight worldly winds are the factors of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And they're said to be Another translation calls them the vicissitudes of life. They're the conditions that we often find ourselves in. And it's the focus of teachings, which are found, I think, in many traditions, but in many Buddhist traditions, it's the focus of teachings because in many ways we get uh, blown around, to use the metaphor of the winds, we get blown around by these conditions. When those winds come, they often knock us off-center. We get buffeted. We get a little bit lost and the, the teaching suggests that it's very helpful to focus on these eight qualities and just to see and explore how they manifest in our experience and learn how to be more mindful, more uh, reflective, and more skillful when they arise. So I'd like to cover that some, but then move into a little bit different area uh, to talk about working with the eight worldly winds as an equanimity practice, as a, as a kind of a wisdom practice, and then ask the question, um, well, how does, what about um, wanting certain outcomes? What about wanting to have, what about wanting things, wanting to bring things about? The teaching of the eight worldly winds suggests that we can learn how to be more equanimous and balanced when they come, but what about the other dimension of our practice, which is really we want to move in certain directions, we want to make certain choices, we want to act in certain ways. And how does that balance with the, with the practice of the eight worldly winds? And so I want to talk some about that and end with, the, with uh, really looking at the question, which is a big one for our practice, of how we balance equanimity with action in order to bring about, we might say, positive outcomes. Sometimes in our practice, we may have the sense that we're asked just to be equanimous about everything, and balanced and non-reactive, and we sometimes don't focus so much, and I think this is, I, I think this is often true, we, we often don't focus so much about how do we see where we should act, or how do we act in a proactive way towards good outcomes. It's almost as if to do that is to show evidence of desire or wanting, which is problematic from a Buddhist perspective. <laughs> so I think it's, it's a very confusing area, isn't it? You know? And I think that partly we get into that confusion because we have a very strong emphasis on sitting practice, on meditation practice. And the primary emphasis in meditation practice is a little bit more how do we how can we be receptive and be present with what's there and open to it and that's very very crucial for our practice 
But in some way, it's only half the story, that we also have to balance the receptive with the active. And it's interesting that for the Buddha, there was a tremendous emphasis placed on effort to achieve positive outcomes. And I think we can get confused about that. So that's the last piece I want to come back to. It's like, how do we, it's really how do we balance the receptive and the active, which we could say in in a broader sense is how do we balance, we might say, the the feminine and the masculine, if you want to call it that. That's that's tricky to make, you know, to use those labels, but there's some, some psychologists certainly use those labels to point to receptive and active. Some people just would prefer to talk about receptive and active without linking it to gender. Anyway, but that's a whole other set of issues. <laughs> anyway, so... Was, I think Ru- Ruth, right? Ruth gave me this morning a page from the... Uh, I think it's like a daily calendar uh, from the Dalai Lama for... Wednesday, October 11th. And guess what? It's about the worldly winds. Mm. Here it is. This is from, from the Dalai Lama. Our intention should not be spoiled by the eight worldly preoccupations, gain or loss, pleasure or pain, praise or criticism, and fame or infamy. So he's pretty much, uh, he, called, he calls it the eight worldly preoccupations. Uh, our intention should not be spoiled. In other words, he's basically saying, be careful with these preoccupations. So it's always good to be synchronistically aligned with the Dalai Lama <laughs> you know, in, in, in giving this talk and having it match the Dalai Lama's calendar. So here we go. <laughs> so the... Uh, So hopefully we've all been, or many of us, have been practicing and exploring these winds. And I like to think of the practice that we work with when, when these winds or conditions or factors come as having a few steps. So first, I think there's mindfulness. There's the just identifying that, the, that pleasure or pain or gain or loss are present. That can make a huge difference in our practice because the characteristic of these winds is that they blow us around and we hardly know that they're happening. We just know that we're being blown. You know, that uh, praise or blame comes and we just find ourselves somewhere else. Or pleasure comes and we're not really mindful. And so the calling attention to the, the winds or the eight conditions can be really crucial for helping us to be less automatic for helping us to see more clearly what's happening. And it's, uh, it's hard, because what our, our conditioning really is, is basically when the pleasant winds come, the four pleasant winds come, we just say, we, we more or less say unconsciously, oh yes, this is how it's supposed to be. I'll be unconscious and enjoy. <laughs> Something like that. You know? And so it's actually, I think we know from our meditation, it's actually harder to be mindful when there, when there are pleasant things happening than when there are unpleasant things happening. And so the attention is called forth. Let me be aware of the pleasant. Let me be mindful and let me explore what this is like. And it's actually a very interesting practice because 
we may never have really looked very carefully at pleasure and pain, gain and loss, and so forth. We may never have really looked at what the dynamics are. So to be mindful, to name them, and then the second aspect of practice is to go a little more deeper and explore, inquire, see what they're about, see the patterns that are connected with it, can be very, very revealing to see how they affect us and and, uh, what they look like. I, I know for myself, one of my initial revelations about uh, pleasant experiences came when I was on a retreat. And I was on a retreat in uh, Massachusetts, and I was staying over Thanksgiving. And normally, and this was was, uh, at the beginning time of my practice, and and at that time, the food was a little bit less gourmet than it is at Spirit Rock, (laughs) if I could say so. And we had, you know, the evening meal which now is kind of like a light supper, often a very tasty light supper. Then we were given um, a a bowl of peanuts, a bowl of raisins, and an apple, (laughs) and and tea. And so it it was actually, um, there wasn't so much happening. (laughs) Although it was really interesting to be really concentrated with ten raisins. I mean, it was, anyway, that's another... That's also another story of just how it became really interesting to actually be with pleasant food sensations and just stay with it and see, oh my gosh, this is intense. One raisin is intense. But the story I was thinking of was the fact that they, on this one day for Thanksgiving, the kitchen prepared like 10 pies for the retreatants. And there, I think there were like four varieties of pies and there was also candy. And for people who had been on retreat for a while and had probably not had a lot of heavy sugar foods for a while, uh, it was both exciting and quite intense. And I remember there was a build-up. I was, you know, okay, this is going to be really fun, you know, uh, the day of Thanksgiving. And then when I actually went to eat the, uh, the pies, and particularly I remember the candy, you know, my mind was quite concentrated and aware, and when I ate some of the candy, the sense of what normally was just very, very pleasant, actually, it was like, almost like metallic, you know, for, it was like being, uh, and I remember eating the ice cream also, and, and being, I wasn't aware how much fat there was in ice cream, because normally I have ice cream, and it's just, you know, um, minor nirvana, or something, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, and and it was, it was actually a little bit uh, disillusioning to be in a state of fairly high awareness and eat candy and ice cream and not have it actually be so much fun, but to notice that, oh, here's what pleasant experience was. I remember having the candy, and the taste of candy stayed with me for two hours from eating it. I don't think I brushed my teeth because I wanted to have it to stay with me or something. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, but it, w- it was very interesting just to actually explore what pleasant or unpleasant was. Because I think what we often do with pleasant and unpleasant is our experience gets mediated by all sorts of ideas, stories, plans, and strategies. And that's part of what we get to explore when we really start being mindful of the eight winds. We can start to see, even it might be even in sitting in meditation here, you know, especially those who might be sitting on cushions, but probably true with chairs as well, that sometimes you can be sitting 
and you can feel some unpleasant sensations like in the knee or the back. And part of what we're invited to do, and I also found this very revelatory when I first started meditating a lot, I could actually notice how much my whole life had been organized around not feeling unpleasant sensations. And there's, I think there's both some wisdom in that because sometimes the unpleasant sensations can point to damage to the body. But a lot of times it's just trying to keep on securing comfort. And I think there's also some delusion in this uh, conditioning. And I found, for example, just amazing just to watch, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I would have an unpleasant sensation in my body and I would just, you know, when, when I was first practicing, just want to continually get rid of it. Just keep on saying, I want this to go and not be able to, to stay with it. And it was, it was very powerful to actually stay with unpleasant sensations for some sustained time, knowing particularly that there wouldn't be any uh, damage or any problems, that it was just, you know, a lot of it's just from being in a posture that's a little uncomfortable, not having stretched the body in certain ways. And to actually be with the unpleasant sensations and say, oh my gosh, there's tremendous aversion. And I would get to watch the aversion. And it would be also for things that I, you know, like flies or mosquitoes or just anything unpleasant. And I could also watch the stories happening, you know. And it may occur for you sometimes, you know, especially I think at retreats, I would have, you know, I would sit and it'd be the beginning of a 45-minute sitting. And I'd notice, "Uh uh-oh, it's happening in my back again. And it just could be, you know, I could be off to the races with that story. It's going to last the whole time. (laughs) When should I move? Maybe I should stand up. Maybe I should just leave the hall. Maybe I should leave the retreat. (laughs) Why did I... And (laughs) Where did I even come? Oh, as that friend of mine suggested it. Oh, she was wrong. (laughs) You know, and I think I'll go backpacking. You know, and all you see, and I think this is one of the um, uh, inquiries that we do. It doesn't, of course, doesn't have to be a back pain that we do when we're sitting. We just watch the tendency of the mind to proliferate. We see the stories that are told, and we notice how it can. That could the story I just told, which could last for half an hour, could come from thirty seconds of sensation. And of course, we also know how that happens with the other winds, with gain and loss, with praise and criticism and so forth. We, someone says something critical to us, and sometimes, I mean, each of us are different in this way, but I know for myself, someone says something critical, and I could be in a bad mood for three hours with the mind proliferating, right? Uh, or, so a lot of what we explore when we explore the winds is we get to explore what are they like in themselves? What, are, what is pleasure like? What is pain like? Because in themselves, these winds are not the problem. It's our reactions to them that lead us to suffer. And again, we know this very, very well when we look at probably interpersonal relationships and um, speech with other people and um, when people say things that lead us to feel, in the context of the winds, that might lead us to feel praise or blame or gain or loss or the teaching about fame and disrepute is really could also be about how people see us. You know, the how we're seen in others' lo- eyes, the reputation. And so what we are invited to do is really to 
attempt to be mindful when these are occurring. See what it's like in the body. See what it's like in the mind. See what our emotions are. Notice the tendencies to have our experience be organized by habitual patterns and by particular stories, ideas, strategies. And to notice them and to see them more clearly. And that in itself is an immense part of the work with these eight winds. Just to notice that, to see, okay, what are the patterns that arise when I get criticized? And maybe to uh, begin to reflect also, uh, because a third way to work with the winds is to uh, carry out reflection. It's to really reflect that they may be impermanent. You know, that there might be, again, I don't, it doesn't happen so much, but there might be a fly crawling on my cheek when I'm meditating, and it's probably not going to last the rest of my life. <laughs> probably not. So it's to reflect on impermanence. Very, very crucial with these winds to reflect on impermanence. We might also reflect that things change often. We may not get so uh, attached to pleasures when we know that they're going to pass. You know, is it so wise to to have so much of our energy go into a pleasant experience that only lasts for a short time? You know, whether it's food or some other some other experience. It's not to say we don't make that choice. It's really to ask us to look more at what all the um, constructions are in our minds, our hearts, our our being. A lot of the winds are connected with our sense of self. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame can be very connected with our self-image. And so part of the exploration is to really ask, what is my self-image here? What do I see coming up? What is... um, How do I get, how do I have my own self-images illuminated when I really start studying the eight winds? And it's a a very powerful aspect of our practice. We can really look um, carefully and deeply at that. We might also reflect in other ways. We might reflect in ways, uh, for example, if we get praise or criticism, we we might want to look not only at our typical reactive patterns, we might want to reflect on what's valid. If we get praise, we might want to ask what's helpful about the praise, or what's a strong point, because it's helpful to know where we're strong, to know our virtues. We might want to ask of criticism, was there something valid in the criticisms? It's not so easy to do with, with friends or people that we know really care for us. It's a very important function, isn't it? You know, and it's, some, it's probably an art form that, we, that many of us could develop more to actually give good critical feedback to our friends. Because I think uh, many of us, and I would include myself, have been conditioned to be overly nice. Buddhists tend to be nice. <laughs> we should have a day long on constructive criticism for Buddhists or something, <laughs> something like that. So, and, and, but we can also... I was, I was thinking of an exercise that we worked with in the retreat that I just co-led on mindfulness, wise speech, and nonviolent communication. I wanted to mention this to you because it gives another example for how to work with this. And this was particularly to work with criticism, a way to work with criticism or things that would arise that were really triggering. Here's what the practice was. We worked um, for about 45 minutes uh, with, with a series of dyads. So we'd have people pair up. But before that... 
everyone had about a six by nine card. On the side of the card that other people would see, you name something with, uh, of one's choice that was basically triggering. It could be, I'll give the example of criticism to, to give this. So I, um, you know, so you might write on the card uh, a comment that the other person should say that would, that might be triggering for oneself. It might be, you're overly sensitive. Has anyone had that one? <laughs> you're overly sensitive. So you put that on the card and you, people got to choose their level of, you know, intensity. So what, we didn't ask people to choose the most intense. People chose that themselves. So you put, you're overly, you know, you put on the card it says, say to me, you're overly sensitive. Okay? And then on the other side of the card, here's where the reflection came in. We asked to have two categories. To where we divide the card in half and on, on the top of the left-hand side, it's for me, as the um, actor, we name my emotion or my feeling, and then we name my underlying need, which is nonviolent communication focuses a lot on needs. And then on the other side of the card, we focused on the other person's emotions or feelings and the other person's needs. And it actually, uh, and then we, so for example, someone saying, you're overly sensitive, what would be my feeling or emotion if this was a triggering type of criticism for me? What might it be? Hurt. Might be anger, shame, and so forth. Okay. And then what might, might be my underlying need? To be accepted, maybe to be understood, yeah, and so forth. Now here's where it gets interesting. What is, would the other person's emotion or feeling be who's saying you're overly sensitive? Well, that's... that's uh, but let's say, what's, what's a feeling or emotion? Anger. Could be anger. Yeah. Could be fear. Could be... Could be shame. Could be... Could be disappointment. Could be anxiety. Oh my gosh, I'm with a sensitive person. I better be careful. <laughs> or something like that. And then what might be the need, the underlying need? It, yeah, it would be depend, it would depend on which of the emotions it were, but it might be wanting to connect. To be heard. Wanting to give constructive feedback. Yeah. <laughs> wanting to control. It might be wanting to control. It might be... Um, Mm, wanting to be secure, you know, not anxious, let's say. And so what we were invited to do was to carry that card, and with each person that in this case was giving us criticism, we try to tune in to what I'm feeling and what my underlying need is, and also what the underlying emotion is and need of the other person. And we did this with one partner after another for about 45 minutes. Very interesting training, isn't it? It's a different way to work with... Uh, this is bringing in the wisdom dimension to work with praise and... Cri- it was pretty intense. Some people were in tears by the end of the 45 minutes because they had chosen pretty vulnerable areas. That was their, that was their choice. But it, it gives an example of... A, um, this, to me, would be a more intermediate or advanced way of working with the winds of praise and criticism or could be some of the other triggers that can give a sense of it really is training a different way of seeing, isn't it? How can I... But I think it, it has as a, 
we did this late in the retreat, so we had, as it were, a foundation of being able to work with mindfulness and exploring, and one would have to know one's patterns pretty well before you do something like that. Otherwise it could be um, hard, and then people would, could choose things that were challenging, but not the most intense and challenging, right? So that can give an example of some very interesting and creative ways to work with, with, with the winds. Now what's also interesting for me is the way that this work with the winds is, as I mentioned, a kind of equanimity practice. We work with the winds and we see what pushes us around and we learn how to be more balanced with them. We learn how to see more clearly what's happening. We learn about our patterns. We can increasingly be with things which might formerly have knocked us around a lot. And if we do the mindfulness work and the practice, we learn better how to not be knocked around so much. We, as it were, we can stand up more when the winds are blowing, which is the fruit of this kind of inquiry. It's the fruit of the practice, and that is a kind of equanimity. There is some, let me read, there's a, this is from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake, it's clear and undisturbed so a sage becomes clear on hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people let go. They don't always prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being unduly elated or depressed. So that's the, the direction. So he's talking about the fruits of the work with the winds, developing this quality of equanimity, which is a very, very powerful um, state. It's, in the Buddhist teachings, it's, it's a state that's close to the ability to touch the sacred, to have that quality of equanimity. Now, what's important, as I mentioned, is that this sense of being receptively equanimous, I think, in some sense, is only half of the practice. And then there's also the aspect of what do we do with, the, with our desires, with our wanting to have certain outcomes? How do we, how do we understand this? I was thinking of a, of a um, class that I co-taught once with Julie Wester, which was a class called Walk Like a Bodhisattva. I think it was at the time when there was a pop song which had that line in it, you know, Walk Like a Bodhisattva. And... We had the first class, and we asked people what they were really interested in. And that particular class, everyone said, I want to follow my desires more. And we said, hmm. <laughs> Is this, because it's, cause it's usually in Buddhist practice, the, you know, there's a questioning of desires. And so we were, uh, what we explored a lot was the difference between, as it were, compulsive desires that are linked with grasping or compulsive aversion, and what kind of, uh, call it desires, are actually skillful and helpful. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that's an area of our practice that we could use more illumination about, that we often get confused. We say, oh, I shouldn't have any desires, you know? And it's actually part of the institution. I have a friend... My friend uh, Thich Minh Duc, who's a Vietnamese monk, he actually has part of his um, discipline is we sometimes go out to restaurants and 
as part of his practice, he can't choose what dish he wants. I have to choose for him. <laughs> you know, so you can't, oh, that, um, you know, that uh, pad thai looks really good. <laughs> that's, that's uh, he's asked not to make those kind of preferences, you know, and so, so um, I have to kind of read his mind or whatever, whatever. But it's so, but there's something that's uh, also in the Buddha's practice, there's a very important place for developing towards what's helpful and actually choosing to move in that direction. And I, I was mentioning that I think because of our emphasis so much on sitting practice, which is especially a receptive practice, and we don't give, I think, as much energy for, for example, to daily life practice where we're making choices all the time, where we're going in certain directions. I think partly because of that, we tend to emphasize the aspect of equanimity a little bit more than the side of making skillful choices, moving in certain directions, developing in certain ways. And so I think it's a very um, important balance to make. The Buddha talked about effort, as I mentioned, um, at great length. Effort is mentioned almost as much as mindfulness in the suttas. He's talking about the need for effort. And effort is primarily understood, not so much in terms of, you know, sitting for a long time or doing this or that, but it's having the continual effort to be aware and also to develop what are called wholesome qualities. Kusala could be also translated as skillful, that which helps us in our journey of awakening to develop the qualities, qualities like mindfulness, like uh, wisdom, like generosity, like many of the qualities that we mentioned before. And the effort to move in those directions is right at the heart of our practice the effort to meditate, to be mindful, the effort to develop generosity, the effort to develop uh, kindness, the effort to develop love. And there's even a term in also in the teachings of the Buddha called chanda, which could be called wholesome desire. It's the really the wanting of freedom or the wanting of opening or the wanting of connection or love. And again, I think we could probably give a lot of focus to this because it's not mentioned so much. And what I'll suggest in, in, in closing is that um, one way to look at our practice is to see that both are really crucial, that we need to develop this receptive equanimity that cannot be buffeted by the wind so much. Very, very important. But there's a, if we only do that, we may get caught in an imbalanced way so that we're, only, that, that, that we're only developing that receptive quality and we're not also developing uh, the, the positive qualities that we need to move towards. And this is, this is uh, this ba- so I think there's a kind of balance of moving very, with uh, clarity, clarity of intention, like you were mentioning, clarity of intention towards what is positive. It could be these qualities, it could be to, you know, for us it could be to know, to have the intuition that this work may open up my development in a beautiful way. And I really want to do this work, or I want to do, I want to have, I want to connect with this person, or I want to have this mentor, or I want to uh, be close to nature a lot. To to me, these are expressions (coughs) of, very possibly, of ways to bring about further development. This would be, I think, a case of healthy desire or chanda. There's also a technical term in the Abhidhamma that could be called aspiration, wanting to move in certain directions. And I think this kind of balance 
is expressed in a beautiful way in the teaching of the Brahma Vihara or the divine abode, that balance of the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. I love the way that teaching is presented as a whole, that if you only have the moving towards the positive, which we would have, let's say, especially in the love and the joy, and you don't have the equanimity, it'll tend to get imbalanced because the equanimity brings the wisdom dimension. It's really saying that the qualities of the heart, of love, of joy, need to be balanced by the qualities of wisdom. And that if we have either one or the other, we'll tend to be unbalanced. There'll be some strong tendencies to get caught in an equanimity that is linked with the uh, tendency to be indifferent or to be uh, not acting compassionately, sort of uh, removed, aloof, and so forth. And so the teachings of loving kindness and joy and compassion are really about connecting. But they themselves, without the teaching of equanimity, can be imbalanced also, because we can, as it were, be so swayed by the uh, energies of wanting this person to be happy, as in loving kindness, or wanting this person to transform suffering, as in compassion, or wanting to be joyful ourselves or others. We can be so consumed by the movement towards that that we can lose that we can um, lose some balance, and 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 be ba- be knocked around by the winds. You know, I really want this person to be happy, loving kindness. But then equanimity says, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> you know, and I think what I'm suggesting is a kind of paradoxical combination of both, which doesn't always make complete logical sense for ourselves. But it's really making a commitment to really develop towards the positive, but also work with the equanimity that's expressed by the teaching of the worldly winds. I'll end with a a quotation from the uh, German monk who lived in Sri Lanka uh, the latter part of his life, Nayona Ponikatera, who wrote some beautiful books. One of them is The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. He said this, equanimity, and we could say uh, the working with the eight worldly winds, equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four states of of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade equanimity. So what that means is that the equanimity would have to be pervaded by love and compassion, which often issues an action. And then the action to help bring about better outcomes for ourselves or others would have as its rudder equanimity. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, to me, this is an important way to complete our, our work with the eight worldly winds. It's to remember that we can practice with them, but that it's also very important to move in positive directions and to not take the teaching of the eight worldly winds as a suggestion that we should just be somehow passive or purely receptive. So I'll stop there. Thanks.
Please, Paulata. Yeah. Because that happened to me last week, and I just think this thought about your teaching. Yeah. Um, and I observed myself in the pot and the pleasure and pain. Yeah. Um, felt it in my body, my heart rate kind of went up. And what happened was it took me away from my intention at that time to work. And so I saw that this was happening, mm. and I was unable to work. I mean, I tried to, you know, kind of even myself out. But. <coughs> Let, let's see, the, what, what took you away from the intention to work? Was it the, the winds or your practice with the winds? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. About you know, instead of my intention was to come in and quietly start work. Have your work, yeah. 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 So, but I saw this happening and it was good, you know, I was really seeing it and, and not just getting caught up in it without knowing. Yeah. But then how do you move past that to come back to your intention? Yeah, it's a great question and it's a it's a beautiful real life example that I think mm-hmm. most of us or all of us can relate to to really to practice with this, and and so you were, um, in some ways, seeing how something you could call that a gain or something very positive could also, um, in in a, in a sense, knock you off center. Would that be fair to say? And so um, I think the main the main emphasis would just be to be aware of it. You know, may you have many such. <laughs> challenges in the future. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's really to work with it. And um, I, I, I would give some slack for, for getting really excited by something very positive happening. So, uh, but it's to work with it. And you may, you know, it may lead you to take some guidelines about how to use your time. You know, I mean, I, I, it made me think of something that I use as a guideline, which is it, when I have certain time that I want to be protected, you know, for example, in writing the book or something. Well, I don't answer telephone calls or I don't use emails. I try to keep some boundaries around the time. Now, that could be, uh, could be a kind of action that comes out of your experience. So that's, that's one aspect of the response. Part of it is just to see what's there in yourself and to notice it and study it. Right, so there could be a lot of uh, ways to respond to that, but those would be two. And um, uh, again, may you have many opportunities to practice further. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Please. Yeah. That raises a question about spontaneity. Yeah. It seems like if you sort of dispel say, the excitement in that example, that life would become flat. Yeah. Well, the invitation really isn't necessarily to dispel excitement, and it's really, it's really maybe to come back to the understanding that uh, mind, you know, uh, mindfulness and wisdom don't necessarily lead to flatness. That's, that's one point. And it's, it's to say that what our challenge really is in any given moment 
might be is really to act with as much mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion as we can. That's the only bottom line, as it were. And so it might be, that I think that would perfectly well let us um, say, uh, it's wise for me to go with this celebratory energy. So it's not necessarily, it's really, to, it's, but what, it, what I am suggesting is that uh, acting from wisdom is always beneficial. But acting from wisdom doesn't mean at all that we do one thing or another. It could mean that we're spontaneous, that we just let the energy go, that we follow it, that we immediately call up 20 friends and go out for lunch together. You know, that could be very, very wise, but we'd have to, we'd only know by mindfulness and by inquiry. And by, you know, by looking at the same patterns over and over again. That's, and that's really, I think, what's being invited, rather than a, a, a particular way of behaving when exciting things happen. So thanks, but it's a great question. Thank you. Please. Again, getting back to, uh, it's dropping all judgment and allowing yourself to go whoopee and jump out the window and also to fall down into a funk, but allow yourself to feel all those. Yeah things without those laws saying, well, I should be this and I should be that. Yeah. Because I hear in herself being, she's judging herself that, oh, I should go back into my studio and work rather than yelling yippee and, you know, pursuing this thing. And I think she has to allow herself to feel all of it without any judgment. That's, I, I, I guess I'm saying that. <laughs> that, that's only the way I, I can struggle to towards yeah. a, some equanimity in myself is this mm-hmm. radical acceptance, as the book says, is mm-hmm. Yeah. To accept all those nutty parts and all those crazy parts and all those sane parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without any judgment on it. Without any judgment. And that's a very tough training to drop judgment. Yeah. On ourselves. Without the harsh judgment. And, yeah. and that, that's why I think, the, I think what you're saying is helpful in the sense that um, it's really an invitation to explore and learn. And I think we don't necessarily just have one experience like this and know what the wisest thing to do is in the future, but it's really like an ongoing exploration. Okay, what, and what can I learn from that? Oh, maybe, you know, maybe you know, one thing I might learn might be, oh, uh, if I really want to work, I'll answer the telephone calls later. That could be, could be a response. It could be, oh, when I find something really positive, maybe I want to go with the energy next time. It could be, could be that, right? We don't know. It, it's probably situational and dependent, but it's really, it's really asking how do we develop the, the, the long-term exploration that does lead to the wisdom. That's really, I think, where the heart of this is. Not, not so much to even say we should do one thing or another thing in a given circumstance. And getting back to yeah. something you said very earlier, it's also feeling the male and the female in us, which is very yeah. much involved in all this equanimity. Yeah. Men get afraid of feeling the female part, Oh, I'm a sissy. And women get afraid of feeling that powerful part that can take charge and run it, you know. Uh, it's taking both those parts in and know that you have both those parts in you. Right. And you have room to roam. Right. And, and knowing that there's a lot of individual variability among, among people. That, uh, but, but generally speaking, that may be true in our culture. But yeah, it's, it's really, I think that I, I found myself wanting to make that connection, talking about receptive and active, which, which in our society does get coded. You know, some people distinguish between the biological category, male and female, and say that this is, is coded in terms of feminine and masculine, which are more like cultural constructions for how we should be if we're a certain gender. I happen to be in a situation where I agree to volunteer. 
Yeah, so so again, I think that it's this is this is where we really say, okay, what's what's wise, and and, and you know, so I, I hear you balancing a lot of things. You say, well, it's a strong, it's an important principle to stay with a commitment, but it may also be a very important principle to act uh, what act wisely when the commitment's not working. That's and that's a very hard one. I think whether it's a job or relationship and so forth. It's a really big one. And so probably there's no correct action per se, but it's really the invitation to inquire and to see what's there. And of course, there'd be a lot of ways you could probably work to be yet more skillful with the difficult energies. But then it's the question of, is this where I want my energy to go? So it's it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And... Uh, And our approach here is really that of, of giving some principles for deep inquiry, for really feeling what things are, for having certain principles of developing kindness to oneself and others, to really, like you're saying, really feel what's there, and yet also um, um, see if there are thoughts or self-images that are problematic, that maybe are getting us caught in ways that lead to more suffering. So it's a, it's a kind of, I think we have a lot of trust in mindfulness and compassionate listening and wisdom to really just keep investigating and sort these out. And we, I think we do so individually and we do so as a community. So let's just uh, finish with 30 seconds or so to sit quietly. And appreciating the the deep inquiry and the way that community supports that. And invite any intention that comes out of the morning to be present. So we close by reminding ourselves, remembering that we practice both for ourselves and for others. And may we offer the fruits of the morning outward to a world which deeply needs the qualities of mindfulness, inquiry, wisdom, the open heart to to listen to ourselves and to others. We offer the fruits of developing all those qualities outward to all beings for their benefit, healing, and awakening. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.